Thanks so much, Sam. Uh, please keep that passage open and uh, let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you that you would show us Christ through your word and that you would change us and transform us into his likeness and teach us, Lord, to trust him. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you have ever stepped out of the frying pan into the fire. There was a circumstance in your life that was just so hard, so testing, so trying, that you never thought, you thought, I'll never get through this. Everywhere you looked, there was trouble. And yet somehow you did come through it, and the darkness lifted, and the path became easier to walk. But then what came next was just so much worse. None of what you'd just gone through came close to preparing you for what came next. You felt as if you just about managed to cling on in the frying pan. But now in the fire, everything hangs by a thread. And you think, will I ever get through? If I do get through, what sort of person will I be on the other side? And what scars will I carry? Maybe this morning some of us feel as if we're in just a place like that. We've faced struggles before in our life, but nothing feels like it compares to this particular trial this particular season maybe it's a fight waiting for us at home or in the workplace maybe there is physical pain in our bodies maybe there's mental anguish in our minds maybe um, shame has been exposed on account of our sin in our life and and we're struggling with the consequences of living with our sin i think will i ever get through will i ever get through to the other side Trusting God. Well, our reading this morning is a moment like that for Jacob. His life so far has been a constant struggle, hasn't it? He struggled with his brother in the womb. He struggled in a family divided by parental favouritism. He fled the family home. He ended up with two wives. He struggled with them. I guess that's not very surprising. Until most recently and most intensely of all, he has struggled with his father-in-law, Laban. Jacob, the man who stole his brother's birthright, the man who deceived his father out of the family blessing, is cheated by an equally duplicitous lying con man, Laban. And Jacob lives in the frying pan of Laban's employment for 20 years, until eventually in chapter 31 he picks up sticks and heads home. Now Laban won't let him go so easily, and so the end of chapter 31 describes the showdown between the two men. It is an angry shouting match, which ends in an uneasy armistice. Jacob learnt to trust God through the frying pan of 20 years of Laban's employment. But can he still trust him when things go from bad to worse? That is the story of this chapter. And it's here to help us as we live as followers of Jesus today. And it can help us as well if we wouldn't yet call ourselves Christians, if we're still trying to figure out what the Christian faith is all about. Because even though Jacob's experience is unique to him, the God he encounters in this passage is the same yesterday, today and forever. He is worth trusting, not just in the frying pan, but also in the fire. There are four scenes for the story, and we're going to look... Through those scenes, we can discover lessons for ourselves along the way. First of all, Jacob's panic. This is verses 1 to 8. Jacob's panic. Verse 1. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This 
is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Well, these angels are a bit enigmatic. They turn up from nowhere unannounced. They are kind of incognito and they don't really do anything. And we read the story and we think, what are they even doing here? But Jacob understands that their very presence conveys a message. He knows that God is here. So he calls it two camps, his camp and God's camp. God's camp. God is camping out, not in a holiday campsite, like some of us might be going to do this summer holiday. He is encamped as an angelic army. We read that in Psalm 34. Here's Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. But Jacob is going to need the Lord's mighty deliverance if he's going to get through the encounter that's about to unfold. First of all, he makes his own preparations. Verse 3. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favour in your eyes. Jacob hasn't forgotten Esau's last words in the story. Do you remember those? Chapter 27, 41. Esau says, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. 20 years ago, Jacob stole Esau, or more than 20 years ago, Jacob stole Esau's birthright, his two-thirds inheritance as the eldest son. Now Esau is due to inherit nothing. And then Jacob deceived Isaac out of Esau's spiritual blessing. So Esau literally has nothing to lose. He, is mur- he was murderously angry with Jacob. Is he still angry? Jacob sends a message which he hopes will diffuse that situation. It's as if he says to Esau, you know Esau, I have become so wealthy. Listen to everything I've got. I don't need our father's wealth anymore. I'm due to inherit it because I stole the birthright, but you can have it. I don't need it. He even, do you notice, calls himself Esau's servant. And he calls Esau his lord. He reverses the blessing that Isaac pronounced upon them. So will his message work? Verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Jacob knows that this is not a welcoming party. This is an army on the march. And no wonder Jacob is overcome with terror. He is in dire straits, in great fear and distress. Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. I guess these practical preparations make some sort of pragmatic sense, but they are a sign of Jacob's panic. Jacob's back is against the wall, and he thinks, maybe, just maybe, I'll get through by the skin of my teeth. I wonder if you can think of a time in your life like that. A time when you thought, if only I can get through this with 50%, 20%, 10% of what I've got right now, then I'll settle for that. Feels like you've hit rock bottom. If you haven't hit rock bottom, it feels like you're on the way down pretty quickly. 
and the terror, the panic, is in danger of overwhelming you, and you think, can I really trust God in a moment like this? The place where Jacob panicked reminds us that we can. Mahanaim, the camp of God. He encamps around those who fear him. He encamps around Jacob. He encamps pretty dramatically around the prophet Elijah many hundreds of years later. Let me read to you a little part, sorry, Elisha. Let me read to you a little part of the story. 2 Kings 6. There's just one verse from this up on the screen. 2 Kings chapter 6. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city, an enemy army. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, an angelic army encamped around the man of God. God encamps around those who trust him. He even did that for his own son, Jesus Christ, at his moment of greatest fear and terror. Another verse up on the screen, Luke chapter 22. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, the most terror any human being has ever felt, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was distressed, hard-pressed on every side, but he knew that God was with him, and so he didn't panic. We don't need to panic either. What do we do instead? We do what Jesus did, what Jacob and Elisha did too. Second scene, Jacob's prayer, verses 9 to 12. Verse 9, then Jacob prayed. Now we've seen Jacob in the story so far. We've seen him worship. He built an altar. He made a vow. He took an oath. But this is the first time in the story when we see Jacob on his knees. So he is desperate. But in his desperation, he doesn't turn away from God. He turns to God instead. It certainly can be hard to pray when we are at our wits' ends. But that doesn't mean we should stop praying. In fact, it's probably the only option we've got left. What is more, Jacob's prayer shows us how to pray if we are struggling to pray or if for any reason we have stopped praying. Three things that he does which are going to help us. First of all, he quotes God's promises back to him. See verse 9. Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. And again, verse 12, you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. At the beginning and the end of his prayer, Jacob simply quotes God's promises. It's as if he's holding God to account. It's as if he's saying to God, look, God, you told me to go home. You told me and my father and my grandfather that from us a great nation would come. And now look, God, 400 men are coming against me. Are you going to keep your promises or not? Now, that might sound a little bit disrespectful, but actually it's very faithful and very biblical. All the heroes have 
the Old Testament faith did that. Jesus did it. The apostles did it. All through the years, Christians have taken God's words, his promises, and turned his promises into prayer. That is how faith works. Faith isn't this kind of mystical feeling we kind of conjure up inside of ourselves. No, what we do as Christian people is we hear what God says and we take him in his word. Just like we often sing, I will stand on every promise of your word. And all of that, of course, is a great encouragement to know God's word, to read it every day, even if it's just a, a short little portion of his word, to meditate upon it, thinking, what does this mean for me? To memorise it, to store it away for the future, to make sure that getting to church every week is a priority so that we can hear God's word taught, to read books that help us to understand God's word more. Because if we know God's word, that will help us to pray. And not just when life is easy, but especially when life is hard. So first of all, Jacob prays God's promises. Next, he confesses his total dependence on God. Verse 10, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Jacob has sometimes come across, hasn't he, as the big man in this story. Do you remember chapter 29 when he turns up and he, he, there's this big heavy stone over the, surf, over the well and the, the shepherds say, oh, we've got to wait for everyone else to turn up to push it away. And Jacob just gets his muscles out and he pushes it away all by himself to impress Rachel. Do you remember how he grew his business from mini to mega? Remember that showdown he has with Laban? And now, literally, he says to God, God, I am so little. It's as if he's playing a poker match and he, he folds, he just puts his cards on the table and says, God, I've got absolutely nothing on you. 20 years before now, he crossed the Jordan with nothing. 20 years time, he is a very, very wealthy man. But Jacob knows he is very, very small. He does not deserve those riches. They came from God's kindness, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Jacob does not deserve an ounce of blessing from God, and yet God has lavished his blessing upon him nonetheless. And Jacob's prayer acknowledges that fact. Our prayers need to do the same, don't they? It is all too easy to assume that we have got something on God, even just a little thing. I've made this or that sacrifice. I've done this or that good deed. I've kept trusting him for this amount of time. I persevered through a trial. Surely God owes me just a little bit. But real prayer, real faithful prayer, confesses that we are absolutely unworthy, very, very small, totally dependent on God. That is a humbling truth to acknowledge, isn't it? But it is also the most liberating truth of all, because it puts us in a place where we can pray the next part of Jacob's prayer. Verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. Jacob simply pleads for salvation. He says to God, I've got all this wealth, but that can't save me. Only you can save me. He says, God, I am absolutely terrified of what is about to happen. Please save me. He has no idea how God is going to save him. But what he does is he puts his life and the life of his family in his hands. 
God's hands. And of course, that is just what you and I need to do, isn't it? When circumstances threaten to overwhelm us, maybe it's ill health, or broken relationships, or financial trouble, or bereavement, or the consequences of our sin, or someone else's sin, or the moment we find ourselves trapped in life, all we can do to God is say, God, save me. And we can be sure when we pray a prayer like that, that God will hear us. He may not do exactly what we want him to do, but we can trust him because he is a saviour. Even if we're not saved out of all the frying pans of this life, we can be sure that he is on our side because he has saved us out of the greatest fire of all. Scene three. Jacob's peace offering. Verses 13 to 21. Jacob's peace offering. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift to my Lord, Esau. And he is coming behind us. Jacob wants today to be like Christmas Day for Esau. One gift after another, after another, after another. Thinks if the first herd doesn't get Esau on side, maybe the second will, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth. He also instructed the second, verse 19, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. 550 animals, 490 of which were female, extravagant, sorry, valuable breeding stock, an extravagant, costly peace offering from Jacob to his brother. And his gift is clearly intended to achieve reconciliation, forgiveness, appeasement, pardon. We may even call this gift a sacrifice of atonement, or to use a biblical word, a propitiation. Because Jacob knows that simply saying sorry to Esau is not enough. Esau is rightly angry with his brother. He's been wronged big time. Jacob needs to give him a peace offering, a propitiatory sacrifice, a sacrifice that turns away his brother's wrath. It is a wonderful picture of the gospel, of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Not 550 animals coming one herd after another after another, but the single spotless Lamb of God, bearing God's holy, perfect, justified anger against our sin in our place once for all. On the screen, 1 John chapter 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jacob's gifts kept on coming, and so does God's grace. It keeps on coming. 
God pours it upon us. It is a flood that never stops, a well that never runs dry. So in our distress, when we think to ourselves, I do not know what is coming next, I'm frightened of it. We can look back and say, I do know what has already come. I may need to face trials. I may need to face the anger of people like Jacob needed to face Esau's anger, but I will never, ever need to face God's anger. God will never, God can never be angry with us again because Jesus died that perfect propitiatory, peacemaking death in our place. And if God gave up his own son, then of course we can trust him to save us today. Even if it is a desperate fight to keep trusting him. Scene four. Jacob's prevailing. Jacob's prevailing. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Well, just as those angels at the beginning of the chapter came out of nowhere, so this man arrives unexpectedly and incognito. There's a pretty big hint, isn't there, about who he is. And he just touches Jacob's hip and he puts it out of joint. So the Lord is here and he limits his own strength in this wrestling match with Jacob. But why does he wrestle at all? Well, because Jacob needs to learn that the life of faith is also a fight. It is a fight to prevail and to hold on to God's blessing. Verse 26, Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Somehow Jacob understands that he is the inferior to this man. Jacob, remember, is a very, very wealthy man, very successful, and he's never met this man before. It's pitch black, he's wrestling with him, but he understands that this man is his superior. And he says, I want your blessing. But it is not as easy as that to get blessing from God. Verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Now the Lord knows Jacob's name. He's not asking for information. He's asking for confession. Because Jacob's name reflects Jacob's character. It's a name that means grasper. And Jacob has been grasping for stuff since he came out of the womb, grasping onto Esau's heel. I wonder what your name would be, or my name would be, if Christ had never touched us. Liar, cheater, thief, drunkard, adulterer, swindler, blasphemer, gossip. You can think of many names that my name would be. I wonder what you can think of for yourself. But God does not leave any of us who we are by nature. He intends to transform us by his grace. He transforms us and that transformation is symbolised in Jacob by the new name that he gives him. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. 
It's quite hard to translate the word Israel, but it means something like struggler with God. And that is a perfect name for Jacob, isn't it? Jacob the grasper, who will not release God from his grasp until he gets God's blessing. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? It's pretty obvious who he is, isn't it? Then he blessed him there. Why does Jacob want to know this man's name? Because if you don't know someone's name, you can't have relationship with them. And Jacob understands that he wants relationship with this man. Well, God doesn't answer the question directly, but he still gives the blessing. And Jacob responds with, with worship. Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Where has Jacob gone from? He's gone from Mahanaim, the place where God camps around him, to meet to Peniel, the place where he meets God face to face. Jacob has got nothing to fear, has he? He's about to meet Esau's army. But if God encamps around him, and if the Holy God meets Jacob face to face without putting him to death, then of course Jacob has got nothing to fear. What has happened through this story? Jacob has, has lent on God in prayer. He has clung on to God in the fight to receive his blessing. He has prevailed through the night. He can prevail through the rest of his life, even if he is destined to carry the scars of the fight. The sun rose above him as he, as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. In other words, Israel remembered the story of Jacob fighting with God. How do you think God transforms us from the people we once were to the people he wants us to be? How does he make us new people with a new name? I think he does it by giving us a limp. See, most fundamentally of all, God opens our eyes so that we see ourselves for who we truly are. Hellbound sinners in need of salvation. He opens our eyes so that like Jacob, we can say, God, this is my name. And I need a new one. I need your name written on me, not my name. And once God has done that, once he has taught us to trust him, then he keeps on humbling us under his mighty hand so that he might lift us up. Again, Paul, you can put the next bit on the screen. Very famously, Apostle Paul spoke about this. He said, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, because Paul had seen this extraordinary vision of heaven, like, I guess, Jacob had seen angels and met with the Lord. Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, I wonder what our form might be. I wonder how God might make us limp. Maybe it is a relationship that we wanted but never got. Maybe it's a relationship that has never proved to be what we hoped it would turn out to be. Maybe there's a wrench to our physical health or our mental health. Maybe it is a dream that has been unfulfilled. Maybe it is a regret that still hurts us, that is still dislocated. And so we walk with God every day. We trust God every day. 
but we walk with a limp. Life is often a desperate wrestle just to hold on to God. None of us like being weak. None of us want to limp. But God makes weak people strong. Jacob prevailed. Jesus prevailed. We can prevail too. So when we step out of the frying pan and we get into the fire and we think, can I get through? What wounds will I carry on the other side? Let's remember, we don't need to panic. God encamps around those who fear him. We don't panic. We do pray. We trust God's promises. We remember that we are very little and we ask to be saved. And then we look to Christ's perfect peace offering, his death for us on the cross. And we remember God is with me, even if I limp, in great weakness and struggle. And so we prevail. We hold on to God, literally, for dear life. And so one day, verse 21, the sun will rise above us and we will get to Peniel, the place where we see God face to face and we will enjoy him forever. Shri Vahans and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are with us, your people. Lord, we bring before you this morning perhaps those things where we are frightened, or even more than frightened, terrified of something in the future or something that we are experiencing in our lives right now. May God help us not to panic. Help us to know that you encamp around those who fear you. Lord, help us to trust Jesus' death in our place. And help us to prevail, to hold on until we see you face to face. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.